Let me throw some numbers at you right away. So put your thinking cap on so the numbers don't go right over your head. But let me start off with the first number of 250, 255 million. 255 million people, that's 77% of the population of the United States, stood in line and were vaccinated for COVID-19 to receive a temporary protection from a virus. So you got the numbers. We're talking about 255 million people, 77% of the United States were all vaccinated against COVID-19 to receive a temporary protection from the virus. Now, that virus had a mortality rate of 1.2%. So the risk of of dying from COVID was 1%, but 77% of of, of Americans were, were were vaccinated for protection, temporary protection. Now, why do I bring that up? Because the, moral, the, the mortality rate of sin is 100%. Think about that. 100% of the people that come into this world sin and will face the judgment and the wrath of God and will all die 100% because of sin. It's probably the greatest pandemic that's ever struck mankind. In fact, it is. Every man, woman, and child is going to die. Every man, woman, and child is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Why? Because of the sin, the sickness of sin that's in their life. Now, here's the good news. But the good news is there's a cure. There is a cure for for this sickness and, and, and the sickness of sin. And there's a Savior, and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Savior has paid a price so that all who will simply believe in Him will not die, but will have everlasting life. Now compare that. Compare the two. Now think about this. Wouldn't you expect there to be a line out in front of every church today in Cody wanting to come in and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they would have everlasting life and never die? But it's not true. Why is it 77% of all Americans would stand in line for a flu shot where only 1% of the people die, but you have another disease called sin where 100% of the people die and very few come to receive the cure, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, think about Cody today. Where's the lines? Where's the one-way streets to the churches of Cody? I mean, what, what are most people in Cody doing today? You're, you're an anomaly. But what are most people doing today? They're not in church. I mean, they're home. They're, uh, they're working in the yard. It's, it's a nice day. It's springtime. They might be uh, going out, out, out the lake or they might be at the river fishing, watching sports on TV, you know, but... I'll tell you what they're not willing to do, and that is to heed the warning of the Scriptures and to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and and be spiritually inoculated in such a way by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that they'll have everlasting life. They refuse to come. Now, why is that? Well, I believe Jesus gave part of the answer in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, where He says this, And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And there is the heart of the problem right there. We have a population of sick, sick people, spiritually speaking, 100% sick. The pandemic of sin has, has really come across the whole landscape of humanity. Everyone has it. They had it from birth. They were born with it. But here's the problem. The people, in large, don't see themselves as what? As sick. So they don't go for the cure. They think they're okay. They don't realize they're dying. So Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That all who confess their sins, repent of their sins, and believe in Christ, they will be saved. 100%. They'll have eternal life. But here's the problem. We have a culture today where most people in this postmodern era that we live in do not think of themselves as sick. Maybe I'm speaking to some of you that are here today. They don't see themselves as what we would call biblically a sinner. That's somebody else. As Christians, we have been called as a church to go out into our community, go out to the highways and byways of Cody, Park County, Wyoming, world, and preach Christ, preach the good news, call people to come and, and, and to receive Christ and, 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 and to receive forgiveness and, and everlasting life. We want to tell our friends, our, our relatives, our loved ones, our neighbors of the healing that can come through Jesus Christ. We must tell them they have to repent of their sins. Oh, there's the problem. They must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. And the response, do you find them standing in line to come? Are you, are you, do you find them just wanting, just can't wait to be inoculated against the very sin and, 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 and the sickness of sin and death? And the answer is no, you don't. Instead, you find them objecting. And, you, and they hear the word repent or sin, and they say, repent of what? What do you mean sin? Well, Jesus came to save you from your sins. Well, I don't have any sins. He came to save you of your sins. And they say, what are you talking about with a hollow stare in their eyes? And oftentimes, usually they walk away in unbelief. And here you're bringing them the glorious good news of everlasting life. And they take their sins and they turn around and they just walk away. Now, sin is a word that is a little dusty. I understand that. It's one of those words that, you know, you don't hear probably at school or you don't hear, uh, you know, at work a lot, the word sin. Um, if, if it's mentioned on TV, it's in a mocking kind of, kind of way. It's, it's a word you usually hear in church or you might read about in your Bible. But uh, when you hear it and the world hears it and you bring the word sin to them, they think antiquated, ridiculous, foreign, in fact, it doesn't even make any sense. They have another word they would use would be mistake instead of a sin. But we live in the 21st century. We live in post-Christian era. And now we live in an era where all morality and all ethics are totally subjective. Let me give you an example of how, how things quickly 
turn upside down and how easily morality becomes subjective in America. Listen carefully to these statistics. 43% of Americans, that's a little less than half, believe that wearing a fur coat is morally wrong. Did you realize that? This is a Gallup poll. This isn't some fringe thing. This is 43, nearly half of all Americans believe if you... This is Cody now I'm speaking. I understand. But the rest of the world, 43% of all Americans believe wearing a fur coat is morally wrong. 72%, that's nearly three quarters, would say that intimacy between a man and a woman uh, before marriage is completely acceptable. 44% say abortion is killing a helpless baby. Uh, that's actually pretty high, almost half, half of America. But at the same time, 18% believe that suicide is morally accepted. Now, this poll was taken a few months ago by Gallup, but if you took this poll six months from now or a year from now, these numbers are all going to be different. Why? Because morality is in a state of flux. It, 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 it's completely changing. It's arbitrary. Morality is personal to you and to others. There's no absolute standard. And so usually what happens is many Americans, what they do is they, they make up their own morality. They frame a morality in their mind that they want to live by, and they usually frame their morality in such a way that they end up on the moral side of it. So they're okay. Then you come to them with the good news about Jesus Christ. Sin? No, nope, not me. And so they're comfortable to continue in their sin at the risk and take the risk of uh, facing the judgment of God and the world to come. So here's the question. How do you bring the good news to a world, to a city, to a county, to a state that does not believe in sin? They don't, they don't believe there's anything morally wrong with them. I mean, how do you bring salvation to a people who don't believe they're what? They're lost. They're, yeah, they need, they need to be saved. Well, we're going to see that God has given us the answer here in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. And, and, and what we must do is bring before them a mirror, so to speak, uh, that they can look into, which they would see the law of God has to be brought before their hearts and their lives. And they might see themselves through that law. We're going to see one of the questions Paul's raising here is, is what is the purpose of the law? And you must bring before them the mirror of the law of God because the moral law of God will properly diagnose the need of the hearts of those who hear the law. So they might see their desperate situation they find themselves in and they might be brought to flee to the saving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we opened up chapter 7 last week. We discovered Paul's theme uh, throughout this whole chapter is going to be summed up in one word, the law. That's two words, law. And we're going to see that uh, particularly the moral law of God, that is the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20. And what we're going to do today and in the next few weeks is answer the question, what is our relationship to this law? It's very important. What is your relationship to the law of God as a believer? And what is your relationship to the law of God before you come to Christ and before you are a Christian?
Now, by way of review, we, we saw we're no longer under the law, right? Uh, we're now under grace. And the law doesn't save anybody. The, the, the law doesn't justify. If we went back two chapters to chapter 5, verse 20, we remember Paul saying, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Which is really an interesting verse because what's that saying? That's simply saying that, that the law came to make there be more sin. There might be more grace to cover the more sin. Verse 5, last week we saw, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And so there you get the picture of the law arousing within us sinful passions that work their way out in the various members of our body and uh, that bear the fruit eventually of death. And then the law, see what it does, law stirs up more sin. And then the law comes like a hammer. And what it does, it, it begins to condemn you right after you sin. And then, and then comes the penalty of the law, which is death. And that's where it ultimately ends. And we saw last time death breaks the jurisdiction of the law. Uh, we saw the illustration of marriage being an example of that. That we who are in Christ, uh, we are vitally joined. We're in union with Christ. He died on the cross. We died with Him. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, what happens? We are free from the law of God. Now, we're no longer bound by the law. So here's the big question for today. What is our relationship to the law? If the law does not save, and we're going to see this phrase by way of an objection, first of all, verse 7, is what then shall we say? That the law is sin? I mean, what shall we say then? I mean, if the law doesn't save, okay, we know that. You can't become a Christian by keeping the law. If the law arouses more sin and produces more sin in our life, and then it condemns us, and then, then it kills us, it seems like, without thinking too hard, the law must be a bad thing. And Paul anticipates an objection being raised at this point. And by the way, it's a pretty logical one this time. Well, what shall we say? That the law is sin? Question mark. Is the law sinful? You tell me it's good, but it sounds like it's sinful. And then the short answer is what? No way. No way. Yeah. No means. By no means. Or no, no, no. I was reading a sermon by Lewis Johnson this last, last week, and he, he said this, Are you crazy? Now, that's how he, he, he interpreted this passage. Instead of no, 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 are you crazy? May it never be. Let it never enter your minds that the law is in any way sinful. Now, in verses 7 through 13, this is where we're going. Verses 7 through 13, Paul's going to give five reasons why the law is good. The law is good. We're going to look at the first one today, verse 7. Because the law diagnoses sin. That's one reason why the law is good. Secondly, the law is a beachhead for more sin. It doesn't, itself isn't sinful, but it's that beachhead where sin comes upon it to make more sin. 
Number three, a realization. The law is a realization, gives us a realization of our spiritual death. Four, law is holy. In verse 12, it's just, it's good, he says. In verse 13, the law shows the sinfulness of sin. So the law is good as long as we understand why God gave it to us and what it's designed for. Now today we only have time to cover one verse. As I promised Al, we're going to keep it short today. Okay, amen? Can I get an amen? Huh? Amen. Amen, okay. And, uh, and so the way we make it shorter is we cover smaller, smaller parts of Scripture. Now here's the longer answer. Here's the longer answer. And he says, no, no, no. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. There we see it. And here Paul speaking, first person, singular. He's now bringing himself into his answer. And Paul speaking autobiographically. And by the way, uh, Paul's not saying, I, like, I'm not like anybody else. This is my experience. No. He's saying, I, autobiographically, just like you. We're all in the same boat here. So we, we could actually say, we. Paul is referring back to his before Christian days when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, before he was saved. This was true of him. And if you're a Christian today, this was true of you before you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, if I had not been, if it had not been for the law back in those days, I would have not known sin. What does he mean by that? I would have not known sin. But we know what he didn't mean. Paul is not saying that he did not know anything about sin, because obviously he did. I mean, he, he brings up some of the sins of his life before Christ. He's not saying that he had no knowledge of, of what was sinful and what was not sinful, because he, he had that as well. We've seen in the earlier chapters of Romans that sin is present from birth. It's not something you acquire later on in life. You're born a sinner. You're born in a state of, of sin. You were conceived in sin. Sin is at work in you as a person from birth down to today. In fact, the law of God was also written on your heart. So you had, a, you had an understanding of what the law of God was because he, he, he wrote it in, in, in a way that it's on your heart to know right from wrong. And remember, he gave us a conscience. And that conscience operates within the... That the knowledge of right and wrong, and, and we go through life that way. And so, so most people, without the law of God, know right from wrong. And, but they don't know perfectly right from wrong. And they don't know what to perfectly do that which is right. Even before there was a law, people understood the difference between right and wrong. Let me take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, to Cain and Abel. Remember Cain and Abel? And... Uh, here they, you know, two brothers arguing over the sacrifice, and God likes yours, he doesn't like mine, so Cain ends up killing Abel. But then we see in verse 6 this, when he saw the attitude of, of, uh, of Cain, he said to Cain, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, if you do well, why has... Uh, Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. 
its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And there's that conversation between God and, and Cain, and he's saying, listen, I'm looking at you and your life and your attitude and, and your anger, and it's wrong. But he says, listen, if you do well, which meant he must know the difference between right and wrong if, if God told him to do well, that you'll be accepted. But if you don't do well, this is before the law, what? We're going to see that he, his, he would not be accepted by God. Uh, sin is crouching at the door of your heart right now, Cain. So, and its desire is to consume you, but you're to rule over it. So there's this dialogue going on between God and Cain, and he realizes that uh, Cain realizes that, that, that he knows right from wrong, and he's being called by God to follow that which is right. This is before the law. It's not saying that he had no, not known or he was, it was sinful before the law. Sin is present from birth. Sin comes from within. Sin comes from the heart. Now, I think what happens is this. Every one of us at birth were born in a state of sin. Every one of us from birth had a basic knowledge of right and wrong from the law being written on our heart. We also had a sinful nature. And the sinful nature is working against us spiritually in such a way that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're blind to see what God wants us to see. And therefore, when it comes to understanding our own heart and our own nature, in Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible says, The heart, therefore, is deceitful, and above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's the problem before we come to Christ. We know the basic difference between right and wrong. We understand that working in our life, where we can't understand the fullness of what all God demands of us in this life. And our heart, because it's been infected by sin, is deceitful. It tricks us into thinking that we're something that we're not, thinking that we're better than we are, thinking that it's the other person rather than ourself that's all the problem. And who can understand it? It means that we can sin, I believe, and and deceive ourselves about sin. We can be blinded about sin. We don't see ourselves as clearly as God does about our own sin. That means we can have sin, and this is the problem that exists out in the world today when we bring the gospel to them. We can have sin in our lives and not know that we do. Be deceived into thinking we don't. We don't realize the severity of it. We don't realize... The, be aware of it all. And we might think it's someone else's problem, not our own. And so we can't diagnose our own heart. Now this is, by the way, this is what biblical counseling is all about. If, you, if you're not familiar with true biblical counseling, uh, true biblical counseling from a pneumatic point of view is this. It believes that every problem you're having in your marriage, in your personal life, in your business, or whatever it is you're struggling with and need counseling about, has a root cause of sin. That if the counselor can help the counselee realize what the area of sin is in their life, that if that person would then be brought by the Spirit of God to repent of that sin, then the problems that exist in whatever the relationship 
or whatever the problem is in that person's life, well, what? We'll get better. So that's, that's the, the framework, the foundation of, of biblical counseling. Now, so here's the problem from the counselor's point of view. You're dealing with people who are spiritually blind, who don't understand. People don't understand their own sin. They don't want to own up to their own sin. They're being deceived by their own sin. In fact, if you want to take it a step further, you've got a counselor who's trying to discern someone else's heart and, 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 and how deceptive it is when the counselor's heart is also deceptive and you've got two deceptive people trying to understand each other. That, that's part of the biblical counseling process. But one of, the, one of the tools that you have with biblical counseling is to bring the law of God to bear on the heart of a person who's struggling with issues in their life and to help them see what sin it is that they actually have in their own heart that needs to be repented of that would help them then, then just work on solving whatever their problem is. Now, you think that'd be an easy process, but it's not. You think if people, you know, hear the law, they just, their hearts would change, everything would be fine, and everything's wonderful in their life and joyful again. But here's what happens. People don't repent even after they oftentimes are confronted with the law of God. And so what happens is that uh, the role of the counselor is to help them see and to help them have greater perception on how the law relates to their, to their struggles in their own sinful life. But what the counselor often hears is the same thing you hear and the same thing that comes out of all of our mouth is we are quick to blame shift. We are quick to justify. We're quick to rationalize and to find the problem out there and not deal with the problem of our own heart. And that will keep a person from repenting and keep a person in their problem situation and it will keep an unsaved person from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. The remedy is the law of God. The sickness is the sin of the heart. And the law needs the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the changes in the understanding of the heart. The very law that exposes or diagnoses the sin also stirs up more sin. That's, that's, that's ways into the problem as well. So you bring the law to bear, and the law to bear is to bring a knowledge of the sin that they might repent, but at the same time when you bring the law into the situation, we saw earlier in chapter 7, that stirs up more sin in the heart of the person that's hearing the law. And so it becomes a process, and sometimes it's a very difficult process. It makes counseling challenging. So what Paul is telling us is that the, the law is not sinful. Quite the contrary, the law is good. It serves a purpose in our lives of spiritual... It's a diagnostic tool that, that God has given us and, and that we can use to help us see the, the, the wickedness of our own heart and others for to see the wickedness of their hearts. Well, see, Pete's not here, so I can use him as an illustration today. That's, by the way, Pete, if you're watching, that this is for you. It's like this. Think of this illustration. The law, think of the law as a spiritual MRI. And so what it is, it's there to, to expose what's under, inside the heart, inside of you, so that you can get a clear picture of what you can't normally see of yourself. 
You know, when Pete uh, injured his arm a few weeks ago, uh, everyone was guessing what's wrong with it, you know. Well, yeah, it might be this, might be that, da-da-da. Well, guess what? Pete, you need to get an MRI. And he had several MRIs. And then they put the MRI on a DVD, and they handed it to him. So his problem was on that DVD. He could go home, put it in the computer, and watch it and see the problem right there. Now, what it did is it revealed a bicep that had torn away from the bone. It rolled up like a shutter. On the backside, it showed a ripped, torn, a torn tendon. And so here's the question. Could that DVD of the MRI cure his arm? Can the law cure the disease of sin? No. But it can diagnose it, can it? And that's what the law does. It diagnoses. It can't cure. And so what the law does then is, of course, the conviction of sin is to point you to the physician, the one who can heal. It points you to the physician, the one who can change your heart or, 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 or correct whatever the sickness is that you might have. And, of course, in this case, it's to point you to Christ. Now, Pete heard him say, you need to go see a surgeon. You need to go see a surgeon right away, and you only have so many days to get this thing sewed up and fixed. And that, that, that's what the law does. It comes to us, and we see the picture, and we realize, oh, it's an ugly picture. We've got sin in our life. It needs to be dealt with. If I don't deal with it, I'm going to die. And then you're pointed to the one who can what? Who can heal you. Galatians 3.24, and then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is your tutor, and it points you to Jesus, that He's the one. And we don't have a lot of time, and, and we do need to get our soul fixed. And so hopefully you see why the law is not sinful and why it's good. It's God's blessing to you. It's His way of showing you your heart. And we need to know that. We need to know how wicked our heart is if we're going to see how, number one, how glorious the, the cure is that comes from Jesus Christ. I mean, think how bad it would be for you to go through your whole life with a sinful heart that was never diagnosed, without the knowledge of sin, skipping through life just like many are doing today with kind of a a view of morality that's subjective and, nope, I'm okay. And then death comes and then you die. And then judgment comes and you receive the eternal wrath of God. When in the kindness and the goodness of God, He gave us the diagnostic tool, which is the law of God, to reveal to us the state of our condition without Christ. Now the Puritans had a word for this. And they called it the law work. That was kind of a Puritan term, uh, the law work. And that, what that means is this. When they preached the gospel, that is the good news of Christ, they would do something first. They would preach the law of God. They would preach the law. They would do the law work. The law had to take effect in the heart by the Spirit of God so that people would hear the good news and then believe and receive the, the, the gospel of grace. Jonathan Edwards said, God makes men sensible of their misery before He reveals His mercy and love. Now, you'll hear on the radio, for example, or maybe read some of the books of some of the 
contemporaries who are preaching or, or really advocating the use of the law in pre- presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might have heard some of the sermons by Ray Comfort, for example, or Todd Friel on Wretched Radio and some of the others. Now, my only, my only problem with, with, with their approach, as I see it in Scripture, is this is that what they do is they, they, they've mechanicalized it. They've mechanized it. I, they've actually turned it into a, a way of, well, you've got to go through this law, this law, this law, this law, and this law. And then you say that, and by the way, you're a wretched sinner now. Here's the gospel. That's not how it works. Because it's not a one-size-fit-all form of gospel preaching. You know, I, you, you know this. There are people who have the law of God written in their heart, and they know... They know they're, they're sinners. They're convicted of their sin. They feel guilty of their sin. They have sorrow for their sin. And they're ready to receive the gospel as soon as it comes without going through law one, law two, law three, law four mechanically. But there's other people who are very stubborn in their sins. They don't see themselves as sinners. And that's where, you know, like, like a surgeon then, you would surgically take the right instrument and apply it to the need of the heart. And for them, the need might be the law of God. Their heart might be so hardened and so they might, so steeped in sin, they don't see themselves as sinners. What do you do? You open up the law. You begin to go through the law with them. You know, a few years ago, there was a young couple that I was counseling with, and they were living together, coming to church, and they, they said they wanted to become Christians. Well, I said, we've got a problem. The problem sin and counting the cost of what it means to become a Christian. And we had to go through the law. And the law was, thou shalt not commit adultery. What does that mean? How does that apply to you? You must repent of your sins if you're going to come to Christ. And I believe this is what Paul's saying about his own life. He had not become aware of the sinfulness of his own heart that he had as a Pharisee before he was a Christian. You know, a good illustration of this was seen in the life of John Bunyan. You know, we we recently just finished up going through Pilgrim's Progress. And, of course, remember the story of John Bunyan uh, living in in, uh, Bedford, England. But here's a story, part of his conversion, and how the law came in in converting uh, uh, John Bunyan. He was a young young lad, an older lad, not quite a full adult, but he was... uh, Attending church, but he wasn't—he didn't believe he was a Christian at the time. Others might have thought he was, but he didn't believe he was a Christian at the time. And the pastor, who was the vicar of the church, uh, his name was Christopher Hall, would preach regularly the law of God to the congregation. And then what he would do is that one of the laws that he preached was the fourth commandment of God: Six days thou shalt work. Seventh day is a day of rest. Uh, and he preached that, and he would preach that. So he warned the congregation about the sin of Sabbath breaking. So one Sunday after church, Bunyan, now Mary and I were there. We, we saw the church, and out in front of the church is this great big grassy field. It's still there. Been there for several hundred years. And that's where he was playing. He'd go out, leave church, and he'd go out and play ball. And uh, he played a, a game called uh, Cat. So 
proper biblical interpretation, right? You have to do a little studying to find out historically and, and culturally, what is this game called? Cat. I was curious. And cat is like baseball today. It's like a primitive form of baseball. But instead of a ball, they had a piece of wood. But they did have a bat, and you try and hit the wood, and then you run around bases, and so this is what they were playing out there on the grassy field. He writes about his testimony of how the law came to him and convicted him of his sin and brought him to Christ. He said that he, uh, he was playing, he picked up the bat, he was about ready to, to hit the wood, and he heard this voice in his conscience saying this, Will you leave your sins and go to heaven or have your sins and go to hell? It was as clear as day for him to hear that. It was the law of the fourth commandment being brought to bear on his heart. And this was his, he writes this, this was his immediate response to that inward voice. I'm going to hold on to my sins. Okay. And so he did. And then the next week came along. And every week he became more and more miserable under the weight of that sin in his life. And he got to the point where he was uh, clinging guiltily to his follies, he writes. And in a miserable state, he was brought to repentance and faith in Christ. That is the law work in the heart of a person that God is saving. And, 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 and I'll tell you, the Puritans weren't like, oh, let's make a quick decision for Jesus, walk down the aisle and pray a prayer. What they would do is they would bring the law to bear in the church service regularly, whenever the gospel's preached, and just let it go into the heart. And let a person leave and the Holy Spirit work on that law in their heart and bring a sense of real guilt and true conviction so there wouldn't be spurious decisions made for Jesus. When people heard the remedy, they, they, they came with tears in their eyes and fled to Christ they might be saved. That's the work and the good news of the law. Now we're going to close by looking at a personal example that, that Paul gives us from his own life as an illustration. He says, Here, here's how it worked in my life. John Bunyan, it might have been a game of cats, but for me, he says, for I would not have known what is, it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. For, for instance, for example, here's my example in my life, he says, I would have not known the meaning of what it means to break the Tenth Commandment if I hadn't read it, and, and it really was driven, driven into my heart, you shall not covet. And the word here, covet, is, is the, the original word there is, is epithumia, which literally means a desire. Now, we think of the word covet almost in spiritual terms, right? We think of it, okay, that, that's the Bible, that's the Tenth Commandment. Oh, yeah, the preacher's talking. This is a church word. Well, in those days, it wasn't a church word, covet. It was a neutral word that was used regularly as part of, part of the, the English language, uh, or in that case, the, the Greek language. It, it, it sounds out of date, but it's a neutral word that simply means desire. And it's used in the New Testament in a good way, good desires. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, as we consider God's will regarding the spiritual qualifications of an elder here at Redeeming Grace Church, we see that if anyone, is where it begins, aspires, desires 
the office of an overseer. There's the beginning point. That's good. You want to have a desire to be an elder, to lead and be a part of the leadership of the church. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, he said to them, Jesus, and we're going to look at this during the Lord's Supper, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer and die. That's a good thing. I desire to have this Passover meal with you. But it also can be used negatively, and that's how it's used in uh, the 10th commandment. Uh, desiring something that's forbidden for you to have by God. That's where the, the concept of coveting has a negative understanding. Even in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. There's a command. But I say to you that everyone who has looked at a woman with a lustful intent, there's that same word, with a desire, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he's taking law-breaking to not just some outward deed, but an inward condition of the heart, lusting and desiring something we shouldn't have, that is, someone else's wife. And here the Tenth Commandment meaning is you shall not lust after that which God does forbid you to have. And, of course, you remember the commandment. It goes on gives an example. You're not to lust after your neighbor's wife. You're not to lust after your neighbor's servant or maidservant or ox or donkey. Nothing that the neighbor has you're to lust after. It's forbidden, forbidden for you to do so. And, by the way, the objects of true... Uh, uh, Desire in this area or coveting are unlimited. The ways you can sin with a covetous heart are just you can just go on and on and on. You can make your list and just keep going. There was a pastor that I knew, a very very good pastor, who lived up in Placerville, uh, up in Placerville, and you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but anyway, he struggled. You know, I, I think his has been public, so I think it's okay. But he, he struggled in the area of, of lusting after winning at the gambling tables. He just, it over, overtook his life. He'd go up to Tahoe, just down the road, and he would hope he'd win. And then he'd lose. And then the lust got a hold of him, and he went after it more. And he coveted to win, and he coveted to win, and he coveted to get ahead. And then he'd go further and further and further in debt, and he lost everything including the church that he pastored, including his wife and family, including his, all, of his, all of his income and retirement and everything else was out the window. You can see how something like this can just take over a person's life. Uh, desiring a secretary at work. It's not your, it's not your spouse. You have a, you're married. And here's the thing for all of us to keep in mind, it's easy for us to confuse what we call the American dream with a violation of the Tenth Commandment. Uh, what is the American dream? Hey, listen, we're, we're in this thing. We're, we're going to get all we can out of this, this life and uh, get as many toys as we can store up in our barns and we're going to win at the end and have all this stuff and in the process... I don't know, die, only go around once. But we have to be careful that we don't interpret the American dream and turn it into a 
spiritual nightmare of coveting because that's exactly what, the, what the, the God would warn us against. Now, here's a question as we're almost finished, but what is, the, what is the reason why out of all the Ten Commandments that Paul could have used as an example of how the law convicted him, he chose the Tenth Commandment? I mean, why did he choose coveting? It seems like kind of an innocuous command to choose. Why didn't he say, well, you know, well, the law of murder came to me and, and boy, I was or adultery, or, or stealing, or lying. And I think part of the reason is because this is one of the Ten Commandments. It is not an outward act, but it's an inward condition of your heart. And I think that's what he wants us to see. It's a secret sin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He prided himself in all of his external religiosity, in all of his morality, in all of his ethics, in adultery, not committing adultery, and and, and being an upright person before the eyes of others. But there was one sin that other people could not see because it was in his heart. And that's the sin that he held on to, and that's the one that God got him for and finally convicted him of through the law of God. And Jesus described uh, the Pharisees as whited tombs on the outside, but they're full of dead men's bones. And it well could be that this last commandment, he, he knew it. If someone asked him before, he would say, by the way, here's a test. Jeopardy, Bible category, 50, you know, no, double, je- double jeopardy, Bible category. What's the 10th commandment? And you'd have to say what? Or, you have to give the answer to the question. I don't know how that goes. Anyway, he would be able to give an answer. So it's not like he didn't know what the 10th commandment was, but he didn't realize what, what it meant in his own heart, in his own life. How it came to him and convicted him of his own sinful heart. And by the way, this is also important as well, that sin is not just breaking the outward rules of God the outward display of the do's and don'ts and thinking you're righteous. Paul is correcting us of that thought. Your sin is in you. And your sin is in your heart. And your sin is there and just as ugly and stinks to high heaven just as much as if it was outward acts as, as long as it's inward thoughts. And that's one of, the, one of the teachings that's come clearly from our Lord Jesus Christ. Sinful motives is sin. Sinful motives is just as sinful as the act itself. And by the way, for those of you who are still involved with parenting, I don't know if some of you are, uh, this is an area of correction that often goes unnoticed in the parenting process. Too often as parents, we are looking to the outward obedience of our children. And we're, we're correcting them for their outward acts of disobedience. And we neglect to deal with the issues of the heart that aren't visible and can't be seen. The attitudes that are just as sinful as the acts themselves. Well, listen, you can have a child that so perfectly conforms to the outside. You say, what a little angel we have here. And yet inside that angel's heart is a wicked heart of sin. Perhaps a covetous heart that can't be seen. It's filled with secret sins. Maybe sins of lust for this or that. 
And if you're just dealing with the externals and you're not dealing with the heart, you know what you're doing as parents? You're raising little Pharisees. Battery-operated, wind them up, whatever you want to do. They'll just click and march in line, look perfectly good on the outside, but they're going to go to hell on the inside because their sin has never been dealt with. And so as parents, I would encourage you to look for a coveting heart in the heart of your children. You know, listen for words like, that's mine, give it to me. You don't have to be fighting over the toy. Listen to the heart. And then bring the law to bear, the law of correction to bear as part of the parenting process. Coveting is just as much a sin as stealing the toy or fighting over the toy. A desire, listen to this, a desire to sin is sin. And we bring the law of God. Let me just close by saying this by way of summary. Uh, is the law sinful? Okay, good. You pass. We can all go home. No. Is the law good? Yes. And the law is God's gift to us to diagnose the sinful hearts of man and for us individually. It brings the knowledge of sin. It directs you to the one who can save you from your sins. You know, you can never go to the, to the law enough to just look into the mirror and see how your heart is, especially the secret sins. Don't pride yourself in your external religiosity. I'm in church today. No. Well, what's your, where's your heart? And the law can reveal that the need of the heart. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, we're going to get into this more, but we're glad that God's given us the law. You know, Psalm 19 tells us that uh, the law is perfect. The law is as sweet as honey. Uh, the law rejoices in our heart. The law is righteous. The law is true. And we're going to see that it reflects the very character and the nature of God who is worthy of all of our praise and worship. Father, we close today thanking you for your word. It's, uh, it's one that, that speaks to all of us on different levels. Lord, we're thankful that uh, you've given us a diagnosis, a, a way of understanding the real nature of our heart. Lord, could there be someone here today without Christ? And they've never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Uh, they're not following Him as the King of their life. And perhaps it's because they've never seen themselves being breakers of your law and disobedient, sinful. Oh, Lord, may they open up your word to the pages of Scripture. May they turn to Exodus chapter 20 and see the law being brought to bear on their heart. And may your spirit be powerful in revealing that nature and the condition of their heart. Lord, we're thankful you didn't leave us sick and you didn't leave us diagnosed. You also provided for one who could heal. And he's the one we've worshipped today. And I pray that with his arms wide open, anyone without Christ would flee to him and he would save them by his grace. In Jesus' name, amen.